Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. It's good to be here. It's great to see you. Yes. It's been weeks since Elise and I have seen each other. I know. There was a little bit of drama, but it's okay now. And here we are. So by the time you hear this, it's only going to be like a week after we record it. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, we had the first three or four episodes of this podcast recorded before we even launched. So I've had a nice little recording cushion and now (laughs) I have none. So this is going to be breakneck speed that we are trying to get these episodes out for y'all on the holidays but it's great yeah it's kind of cool that we're gonna be a little bit more recent and i'm excited what's new with you what is new with me and let's see it's november the election's over amen oh my goodness and i'm feeling i'm feeling pretty good about it there was discussion of perhaps us covering some political movie but we have something fun planned for inauguration day yes so we have our we picked our movies out for the rest of the year in the beginning of next so i'm excited about that i'm excited to not have to watch cnn and abc and fox and flip between things a million times throughout the day and just figure out what kind of future i was gonna have oh my gosh I mean, that is certainly its own type of horror movie. This 2020 will be its own horror movie, I think. A hundred percent. It's going to be interesting to see the impact that it has on the genre as a whole. I mean, that it's already started to have. Oh, yeah. I mean, even seeing some of the movies that have come out since or that have been able to be filmed during 2020, you could tell these themes of isolation and these themes of distrust definitely going to be prevalent for the next couple years, if not longer. Oh, I don't like isolation. <laughs> it's scary. Seriously. I mean, especially thinking that we might be heading back into another lockdown. I don't I don't know, man. This is a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's cold outside, so I don't really mind being shacked up in my apartment. I'm kind of a homebody in the colder months, especially, so I'm just going to try to cling to that and pretend that I'm doing okay. <laughs> And watch all the movies, which is what yeah. Elise and I were able to do in our absence of being able to see one another. I, y'all, oh, I didn't really do anything impressive. I was going to say that I watched scary movies by myself, but I watched two movies that I had already seen previously. <laughs> so there really wasn't anything impressive there. I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I almost watched the movie that we're going to talk about for the recording after this, but it didn't work out. And I'm kind of glad because I'm a little bit nervous for that one. It's going to be a little sci-fi-esque. And that's definitely something that really makes me extra scared. Sci-fi scares you? Yes, it really stinking does. So that will be a challenge, to say the least. Fret not, Elise and I are still having our hand-holding viewing parties. (laughs) (laughs) With all the lights on, preferably in the daytime. Sitting with Shay's cat, nice and cuddly. Absolutely. Yeah. So we say movies because in this episode, we'll actually be talking about three movies. We are? Instead of just one. This is going to be a different episode. By the time this is going to be released, it's the day before Thanksgiving. So we thought it would be really interesting to talk about Puritan ladies. Yes. Yes. Puritan ladies. And I admittedly don't know much about this. I know about the movies and, you know, I've seen all of them, but this is Elise's wheelhouse. I am a hoe for Puritans. <laughs> she is a Elise is a hoe for period pieces. Peri- <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my God. Period pieces, period. Like, a men, hallelujah. Before the horrors. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, she's going to out me. <laughs> we were going to have a podcast on. <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> 
we were <laughs> before the horrors Elise wanted to have a podcast on Victorian literature where we were able to read Victorian novels and talk about their themes and talk, talk about their movies and I looked at her and I'm like I think we'd appreciate this <laughs> but let's try my idea and thus we're here with sex and horror I Everything happens for a reason. I couldn't be happier to be where we are. I fucking love historical context. I think it makes everything so much more interesting. And that's what I was thinking of when I originally thought, hey, Shay and I should do a podcast together. But here we are. And I love this even more because even though horror took a little bit of coaxing to get me to talk about, I'm really interested in in topics about gender, sexuality, gender representation. So this is better than anything I come up with on my own. So this is our way of throwing Elisa bone and being like, here, you can have your period piece. So we're going to talk. So Such a bitch. I'm kidding. <laughs> you know I'm kidding. No, I know. And I, I'm enjoying it. This is an exciting day for me. It is an exciting day. Nothing can bring me down. (laughs) So, Elise, what movies are we talking about today? Okay, so we're talking about The Crucible from 1996, The Village from 2004, and The Witch, the most recent, from 2015. I love The Witch. It's so good. One of the best films I've seen. And it could have to do with my interest in the time frame and the content, but it's just so good. Right. And I think The Witch is an interesting film that is able to really marry that period piece with the interests of the horror audience now. Mm. Because if you were to ask horror fans universally what they think of The Witch, a lot of people love The Witch, especially just due to how theatrical and authentic it is, even when it comes to its set dressings, when it comes to its atmosphere, its lighting. They don't use any artificial lighting. It's all... It was, really? Yeah. It's actually all lit by candlelight or sunlight. Ugh. And the houses and the barns were made with the ways in which they would have traditionally. Th- that director is very, very peculiar and very specific. We'll talk more about The Witch later, but I am a huge fan of The Witch. But we're going to start with The Crucible. We are. And even before we get into The Crucible, we're going to start with some historical context just to get everybody on the same page. So a brief history on Puritanism. So the sources for the following information are The Crucible Itself by Arthur Miller, the original play, and Witchcraft in America by Peggy Sari and Elizabeth Shaw. All right, so Puritanism was a Protestant religious movement stemming from King Henry VIII's break from the Catholic Church of Rome in 1534. So he desired a divorce from his then-wife, Queen Catherine of Aragon, so he could marry his mistress, Anne Boleyn. I mean, everybody knows that, but I'm saying it anyway. The Pope had denied Henry his attempts at getting an annulment. So Henry said, fuck the Pope. He began his own Protestant Church of England. This break caused massive and deadly conflict in England for the following generations. So for example, Henry's first daughter, Queen Mary I, became famous for her ruthless persecution of Protestants when she ascended the throne in 1553, earning the nickname Bloody Mary. I love that. Did you fucking know that? I think I did. But I I thought there was something more violent in tune with it. Mm, Well, it's pretty freaking violent. I mean, she killed hundreds of Protestants trying to get the English thrown back to Catholicism. Yeah, that's bloody. Pretty freaking blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty freaking blah, blah. (laughs) Pee my pants, okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty bloody. And you can sip on that the next time you drink a Bloody Mary at brunch. (laughs) it was in the midst of this conflict between 
Protestants and Catholics that the Puritan religion came to exist with the goal of purifying the Protestant faith from which it came, eliminating any contemporary practices and ceremonies not directly rooted in the Bible. So first rule of understanding Puritans is knowing that they are dick hard for the Bible. I am going to hell. So these people did not call themselves Puritans, but rather earned the nickname from others who made fun of their strict ideals. So it's meant to be sort of a haha Puritan. It stuck, obviously. And some examples of their strict ideals include not celebrating Christmas or holidays, forbidding dancing or other, quote, vain enjoyments like reading or writing. Yeah. That's vain? Yeah. Well, men were allowed to read. And they were allowed to write for the purpose of celebrating God or writing sermons. But there was no such thing as a novel in a Puritan settlement. That mm. that was not something that was done. It was all like nonfiction Christ stuff. <laughs> I want that to be a section of the Barnes & Noble is nonfiction Christ stuff. It's like <laughs> You would find every Puritan in that section of Barnes & Noble. Yeah, so vain enjoyments, no reading or writing for funsies. They would log attendance at the meeting house to track who was and was not attending church, and they would enforce strict working hours for children as well as adults. When the Puritans left England and landed in the American colonies, they existed as a theocracy. So the Bible, which governed their morals and beliefs, also governed their laws. So no matter what you did, you could not escape. Like, your whole life is basically in this book. Puritans believed that sinning was to damn oneself to hell, but they didn't even have a ritual for cleansing oneself of sin. So basically, once you fucked up, who knows if you're going to make it to heaven or not. That's definitely really present in some of these movies now that you're saying that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, that's something that needs to be understood because that constant fear, not only of your government, because they would punish you if you messed up too, but of your God... It was wild. So was it the expectation, really, that if you're a Puritan, you are soaked in sin and you just have to be, like, begging forgiveness, begging forgiveness, and it's not? Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's really prevalent in The Witch, if nothing else. Absolutely. And if that wasn't enough, they believed in harsh public forms of punishment, like as seen in Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. So think standing on a scaffold in the center of town, locked in a pillory, that thing where you put your head and arms through and you have to stand there and let people throw rotting fruit at you. I was going to say, not the buttons, but he wasn't in that. The <laughs> gingerbread man wasn't in it. Who was in that, though? Somebody was in the pillory. I Shrek. think it was um, Pinocchio. <laughs> yeah. So honestly, if you want to know what it's like to be a Puritan, watch Shrek. <laughs> I actually think that's pretty good. <laughs> it is. Uh, you're right. We love Shrek on this podcast. We we should do an episode on Shrek just for fun. I think we could do an episode on Shrek just mm-hmm. for fun. Let us know if you want us to do an episode on Shrek just for fun. <laughs> I'll make a poll on Instagram. Send us an email. <laughs> do you want the trilogy or just the first movie? <laughs> <laughs> Shrek Ever After? What about the spinoff? Should we talk about the soundtrack? <laughs> and all the while Puritans dealt with the weight of their faith and laws, they did so in the middle of fucking nowhere. Being governed by a kingdom across the sea, news took weeks to months to travel. They were often left to wonder about the state of the country they were born allegiance to. And in addition, conflict with Native Americans and brutal weather made survival difficult. So despite some of the more admirable qualities of this folk, modern generations associate Puritans with one of the most tragic events to happen in our at-the-time young nation, which is, can you guess, the Salem Witch Trial. I can't believe you didn't guess that, dude. 
<laughs> I don't know where the Boston Tea Party came into my head, but I think that's just based on <laughs> so tragic. <laughs> All that tea. All that tea. <laughs> but anyway, the Salem Witch Trials, which we're going to talk a lot about. So the Salem Witch Trials resulted in the unjust death of 20 men and women and the arrest of hundreds more. This event spanning 1692 to 1693 turned the already deteriorating Puritan ideology upside down but not without those who fought against it, of course, revealing what can happen when unchecked power is challenged and how men and women, mainly women, face deadly consequences when the status quo is challenged. The movies we discuss today are rooted in this sense of slow-burning, uncomfortable fear, which actually lend themselves to an emerging genre of horror movies in our 21st century. Elevated horror is a genre given to a horror film where the film's impact does not rely on jump scares and gore as much as ambiance and scenography. It Follows from Episode 4 is considered a part of that genre. The Crucible, The Village, and The Witch are considered part of the genre as well, which makes sense because it would appear that Puritanism is one of America's first instances and founders of elevated horror. I like it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to our first film, which is The Crucible in 1996, adapted from Arthur Miller's 1954 play, The Crucible. So you teach this, Elise. I do. I teach this to my 11th graders. How is that usually? I love it. It's one of my favorite things I get to teach because I'm just so obsessed with it. I think that it's a really interesting play. I think it's a little slow to start, and I think that sometimes it's hard for the kids to follow the Puritan archaic dialogue, but I think that that's part of the fun when you get them to read it out loud in class. There's also some fun stage combat that we get to do. I mean, not this year because of the pandemic and we read everything over Microsoft Teams. Also... I was in the Crucible when I was in high school. Oh. Did you know that? I didn't know that your high school did it as a play. Yes, I was in it, dude. So before I was a teacher, before I even read it, I was in it when I was 15. I think I read John Proctor's part in English (gasps) class because no one wanted to read. John Proctor has so much iconic dialogue. Well, then it fits. Mm Mm-hmm. I was Elizabeth Proctor. (laughs) Babe. (laughs) Babe. (laughs) Ew, I never say babe. I hate that. (laughs) <laughs> i was like if you saw my face i was like <laughs> okay so, so anyway yeah i was elizabeth proctor so i'm kind of obsessed with elizabeth proctor so in short both the play and film are about the start of the salem witch trials okay so coming back to that tragedy focusing on an ambitious calculating Abigail Williams, as she exploits the hypocrisies of her Puritan culture to try and have Elizabeth Proctor, me, wife of her former lover, John Proctor, Shay, arrested and hanged for witchcraft. While Miller's play is considered historical in some respects, it is largely fiction, which is another thing that people have a hard time remembering in my classes. They literally think that the Salem Witch Trial started because Abigail Williams and John Proctor had an affair, but that's Mm. totally fabricated. So I just want to make sure I say that to you now. It's a fabricated affair. But there's reasoning behind that. Like I said, the play is largely fiction. So it's crafted as an allegory for the McCarthyism trials occurring during the conception of the play. 
So Miller's play is horrifying in all the ways one would expect it to be, based on what we just talked about, Puritanism, and people are wrongfully arrested and killed. A young woman tries to win back the love of a man who no longer wants anything to do with her, which is so cringy. There is an insane amount of flawed logic, and no one in power notices it until it's too late, etc. And Miller bridges a 300-year gap between two very different worlds, showing that Puritan ideologies that founded America as we know and understand it today still very much exist. And that's the most terrifying. The Salem witch trials cement Puritanism in early America as the stuff of nightmares, the grandmother of horror as we know it. And I do have a quote that I want to share. This is from The Witches, which is a book by Stacey Schiff. She writes, America's tiny reign of terror, Salem represents one of the rare moments in our enlightened past where the candles are knocked out and everyone seems to be groping about in the dark. The place where all good stories begin. Easy to caricature, it is the only tragedy that has acquired its own national unrelated holiday. It is more difficult to comprehend. The irresistible locked room mystery of the matter is what keeps us coming back to it. In 300 years, we have not adequately penetrated nine months of Massachusetts history. If we knew more about Salem, we might attend to it less, a conundrum that touches on something of what propelled the witch panic in the first place. Things disturb us in the night. Sometimes they are our consciousness. Sometimes they are our secrets. Sometimes they are our fears, translated from one idiom to another. Often what pinches and pricks, gnaws, claws, stabs, and suffocates like a 17th century witch is the irritatingly unsolved puzzle in the next room. So I just wanted to make sure I stress that even though Puritanism might seem dry, that bitch is everywhere. It's in horror. It's in history. It's in religion. It's in government. There's so many fragments of it. Also, in American literature, which is what I teach, starting with Puritan context kind of sets everything up for the texts to come. So it's really easy to see that sort of chronological text influencing text effect, which I think also outlines things for me as well. I'm excited to finally get to talk about The Crucible through some of these other lenses that I only get to sort of roll around in my head, for lack of a better term. So let's roll them around. Let's fucking roll them around. Remind me what The Crucible's about. Let's talk about the ladies. Yeah. We have Abigail Williams. In the movie, she's played by Winona Ryder. You might recognize her from Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands. Most recently, she's in Stranger Things. Iconic. Iconic. We have Elizabeth Proctor, who's played by Joan Allen. She was Pat Nixon and Nixon, Betty Parker in Pleasantville. Anyway, she was actually nominated for an Academy Award for her performance in this film. Mm. So she does a really good job. And then we have Tituba. She's played by Charlene Woodard. She's kind of most known for her breakout role. She received a Tony nomination for Best Featured Actress in a Musical in Ain't Misbehaving in 1978. And then she played some other roles in Unbreakable and Glass. We have Mary Warren, who's played by Karen Graves. Doesn't have too many. She guest starred on, like, Monk and SNL. And then we have Rebecca Nurse, who's played by Elizabeth Lawrence. So she's best known for her role in All My Children, which ran from 1979 to 1991, where she won three Emmys for Best Supporting Actress. So The Crucible basically is about, as we know, John Proctor has an affair with Abigail Williams. The play starts out, we find out Abigail Williams, who is the niece of the town reverend. Mm -hmm. She was caught with her cousin, who is the reverend's daughter, dancing in the woods with Tichiba who is Paris's slave from Barbados and some other town girls. And they were like around the forest, dancing, doing whatever, blah, blah, blah. 
And of course, we know that dancing is vain enjoyment and is very much frowned upon. It's associated with witchcraft, etc. So the story unfolds in Act One, basically it gets to the point where prominent people in Salem are convinced that their sleeping daughters, so Betty Paris is inert, she's not moving. We find out that Putnam's daughter, Ruth, and Putnam is like the richest, has the most land in the village. His daughter's not moving. They seem to be sick. Dr. Griggs, who really isn't a doctor at all, if you look at history, he says, you should look to unnatural causes, aka witchcraft. The Putnams are getting frantic. They don't know what to do. Some people are trying to argue with them, like, let's not look to witchcraft. Let's keep it chill. Like, they're just kids. Like, they'll tire of this whole thing and then they'll be back to normal. But then Abigail sees an out because in Puritan culture, if you were accused of being a witch and you confessed to it, you would be seen as a hero because you would be seen as somebody who was willing to cast aside Satan and come back to God. But if you were accused of witchcraft and you kept denying it, denying it, denying it, you would still get in a lot of trouble because the accuser held the power. They believed that since witchcraft was a, quote, invisible crime, nobody could see it except the victim. So why would the victim lie? Especially at this time, why would a bunch of little girls lie? They have nothing to lie about. So if you were accused, you pretty much always were held to that accusation. The best thing you could do if you wanted to live was confess to it, be seen as a sort of hero, maybe have your reputation tarnished a little bit, but have to live the rest of your life knowing that you lied and you could go to hell for it. This is what starts to take everything completely out of control. As the play goes on, more people get accused. Eventually, you know, we learn of Abigail's plot to have Elizabeth Proctor arrested. Eventually, we get to the court. No matter what the townspeople do who are trying to help the government or the the presiding judge see logic, see these flaws, they are just not having it, not having it. And eventually, John Proctor confesses to adultery in the church. And at this time in Puritan culture, adultery wasn't just sex outside of marriage or cheating on a wife. It was sex outside of any type of marriage. And it was seen as one of the most grievous sins that a person could commit. It was like right up there with murder and bestiality. Were most of these witchcraft accusations made toward women from other women? Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. That is the case for sure. Interesting. And Puritans believed because of their close allegiance to the Bible that women were much more easily corrupted by the devil than men because of Eve having consumed the apple in the biblical story of Adam and Eve. So many more women were accused of witchcraft than men in this case. So it's like... 18th century slut-shaming or 17th, 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 yep. 17th century slut-shaming. Mm-hmm. Huh. Very overt slut-shaming. There were a couple of women who were accused of witchcraft and part of the literal evidence used against them in court, for example, I think it was somebody, her last name was Osborne or Good, one of those two. One of the pieces of evidence used against her was that she lived with a man for a year before she married him. Martha Corey, another woman in the village, one of the things that was used against her in court was that she was seen reading a book. I mean, just jaw dropping things. I mean, at this point, shouldn't it be like fart logic? Whoever smelt it, dealt it. Like whoever is thinking of witchcraft or is seeking witchcraft probably is being corrupted by witchcraft in some capacity. Like what what about that? If someone accuses someone else, does that recuse them from ever being accused of witchcraft themselves? That is such a good question. I don't know. In the crucible, when we see that happening, it's usually to sort of deflect the blame. And it does kind of make it seem like, well, if I'm accusing somebody else, then that means that I must not be guilty because it's somebody else who is making me do these dirty things. Only a witch would know what witchcraft looks like. Such a good point. The witch and the victim, according to the Puritans. Mm. 
It's just crazy. So when Proctor confesses to adultery, that seems to be the moment where the court is finally going to see that Abigail has ulterior motives for accusing Elizabeth. And if their star witness is proven false, that debunks the whole trials, right? Then they call Elizabeth Proctor into the court and ask her because she's the only one that can corroborate the affair. But because adultery is such a grievous sin, she lies and says that Proctor did not have an affair. She thinks he's protecting him, but that condemns Proctor and returns Abigail to power. So then Mary Warren, who is a servant that works in the house, she's kind of like the only thread of hope left because she, who originally was with the girls accusing people, is made by Proctor to tell the court that she was lying, that she was caught up in this energy, in this drama, and she was lying. Now, I mean, that makes sense. We could think of, well, like groupthink or human phenomenons where you just get so caught up. Hysteria. Yeah, 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 yeah. But at the time, that just was never something that would be on anybody's radar. So Mary Warren sounded like a crazy person trying to say, well, I thought I saw them, but I didn't see them and blah, blah, blah. So anyway... The court is breathing down her neck. They're yelling at her. She's only a 17-year-old girl in the play. And eventually she breaks under the pressure. She accuses Proctor. She says, you're a witch. You made me do this. I come to God. And so then Proctor is condemned. So basically the play comes out at the end. And of course, we remember that this was originally made as political commentary of the Red Scare trials that were going on in America. At the end, it comes to be, and we see it very clearly with Danforth, who represents sort of the force of the state, right? The unrelenting power of government. We see him basically prefer to maintain order in the Puritan church and law than admit that he was wrong. And was that what really happened in the Salem Witch Trials? Partially. All of the fates of the characters that Miller talks about are accurate. You know, nobody dies in the play that doesn't die in real life. But of course, we know Abigail Williams was actually an 11-year-old girl. There was no evidence of any sort of affair between them. For whatever reason, that was added maybe for dramatics or whatever. I'm sure he had a very good reason. Or at least maybe to provide a more linear reason to follow. Because in real life, it is so hard to really tell what happened to start these trials. But I think something that Miller gets right based on kind of the research I did for this podcast and reading up on this and talking about it is there's definitely this super corrupt government force we see here. And part of the way we see that impacting people in the play is it constantly puts down women. It constantly puts down people who try to stray from the status quo. The fact that everything was always kept so hush-hush was traumatizing to people. There are articles about developing PTSD from growing up in a Puritan society. And does Puritanism still exist? Yes. Any religion that is seen as very strict and meant to purify a specific strain of faith or lives by the book or whatever is considered a quote-unquote Puritan faith. So as for my ladies, Abigail Williams is probably the most interesting character just because she shows so much calculation Her whole decision to rebel against Puritans and become a part of these trials and accusing innocent women, we see is to help her gain power. But we also know that she has been scorned by these people. So she's kind of a villain, but at the same time, she's one of the smartest people you read. But it's also like she's adapting masculinity because she knows that in order to maintain and to grow power, you have to have command over women, especially in this context. So it's not even as though she's breaking from this Puritan-ness. She is weaponizing it and like masculinizing herself while still putting the women that deserve it in their place. 
That is so interesting. We see her make very graphic threats to the girls. If you tell what really happened in the woods, if you tell anything, she literally says, I will come to you with some pointy reckoning that will make you shudder. A dick. <laughs> oh. Everything's a dick. Everything's a dick. As you say, I really... Oh my god, I never thought about that. I'm never going to be a able to read pointy that. reckoning that will make you shudder. shudder. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Oh my god, I can't. My mind is so blown. See, again with this text, every time every time it comes up, I there's new things to say about it. But yeah. So, what the <laughs> fuck? Oh my god. So, eventually she leaves. She runs away with all of her uncle's money with her friend Mercy Lewis, and historically she ends up becoming a sex worker. Which I guess is the most rebellious of Puritanism you can. I think so, be. for sure. Yeah. But also because her and all of those girls, historically, I mean, underwent a lot of scrutiny for the rest of their lives for being part of that. But of course, you know, they were just children. So I think a lot of the children received a lot of blame for the type of government and the type of trials that the adults were upholding. I mean, we can't forget that. There's a lot of speculation that Putnam especially used his daughter as a weapon. He had her call out specific people in court because what would happen is if you were accused of witchcraft, if you said yes or no, but were found guilty anyway, your land would be confiscated by the government. Now, not everybody has money to buy that land back or at all, but Putnam, like I said, was the richest motherfucker in that province. So there's speculation that he had his daughter systematically... And this is in the play, but also in real life, systematically accuse certain people of witchcraft so their land would be confiscated. Mm. He could buy it and spread out his wealth. There really was personal beef, land grabbing happening. It's just like this whole mess. But I think it's a good text to kind of start out with today just because it talks specifically about the Salem Witch Trial. And I think that it brought the Salem Witch Trials into the then 20th century, kind of reminded people like, hey, these exist. And hey, events like this happen in America still. And now we're still talking about it. And now we read it in high schools. So then if we look at something like the village, the village doesn't have witches. So how is that Puritan? Okay, awesome. So... Another foundational fear the Puritans instilled in current generations, besides those of feminine empowerment and diverging from the status quo, is fear of the wilderness. For centuries, humans have held pessimistic views of the environment. Roderick Nash cites several examples of European folklore that have fueled generations of both conscious and unconscious like-mindedness in chapter one of his book, Wilderness and the American Mind, such as tales surrounding infamous beings like centaurs and trolls. These creatures exist in folklore, but the birth of Christianity and the creation of the Bible cemented such tales as truths in the minds of countless people. According to Nash, quote, the authors of the Bible gave wilderness a central position in their accounts, both as a descriptive aid and a symbolic concept. The term occurs 245 times in the Old Testament revised standard version, and 35 in the new. In addition, there are several hundred uses of the term, such as desert and waste, with the same essential significance as wilderness, end quote. In the Bible, the wilderness is the antithesis of paradise, just as hell is that of heaven, respectively. Therefore, as the pious and rigid Puritans made their way to the new world, determined to manifest their own paradise and religious sanctuary, they carried with them the great fear of the woods, not only as a bodily threat, 
but as a spiritual barrier. It can also be inferred that part of the Puritans' historically negative attitude towards Native Americans could have come from their fear of the woods and the Native Americans' ease existing within challenging terrains associated them with the devil. And that's the entire crux of the village is mm-hmm. don't go to the forest. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So in the case of the village, townspeople aren't necessarily afraid of Native Americans, but rather the mysterious creatures called those we don't speak of. It was filmed in Chatsford. Did you know that? I knew it was filmed somewhere around here, but that's so close. It is so close to where we are. That was super interesting. This cast is star-studded. I texted you when I watched this, and I was like, who knew The Village had all these winners in it? You have Bryce Dallas Howard. You have Judy Greer. You have Sigourney Weaver. Oh, my gosh. Who is in everything. When you go to her wiki page, you have to go to another wiki page just to see what she's in. Amazing. (laughs) And then, I mean, even on the guy side, too, you have Adrian Brody and Joaquin Phoenix. Like... Hello? Mm-hmm. Like, geez, can you imagine the budget if they did, like, a revamp now? I'm pretty sure the budget was, like, $65 million, and they made, like, 200-something million. It made that much? It made a lot, yeah. That's the thing. I remember it being, like, this cultural phenomenon when it came out. It came out in 2004, so that made me 10. And, <laughs> and I remember it having this lore around it. Like, people were like, oh, the village, the village, the village. And maybe it was because it was M. Night Shyamalan and maybe because mm. people were expecting a lot out of him or, or whatever, or maybe because it was just like weird and had this twist ending. And obviously, I'm not sure the horror of it aged as well, or even the creature design, because I think I wrote down like, what the hell is that porcupine looking <laughs> motherfucker? <laughs> yeah. The village is really interesting in a lot of different ways in terms of, obviously, its Puritan roots. Also, its depictions of disability is mm. pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Bryce Dallas Howard, who plays Ivy, who I would say is our main girl, she is blind. And there's also a man that lives in the village who has some level of developmental disability, who Adrian Brody plays. And they're on the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of how they're depicted. So it's interesting to see those depictions, obviously, from a 2020 lens and not like perfect vision lens, like the year 2020 lens, <laughs> and, and, and seeing how they're depicted. But it's also seeing how disability is treated in a Puritan, quote unquote, context, mm-hmm. even as it pertains to gender and as it pertains to what is permissible and what is not permissible. So I found that super interesting because you have a gender disbalance. Obviously, the type of disability is different. But then even how the rest of the villagers treat that was also super interesting to me. Like I'm thinking of a theme in Puritan culture in general, which is sort of like you fear what you can't see or what you can't understand. And we see that in the Crucible for sure. You know, Abigail Williams manipulating that power to take control of the trials. And we also see that in the woods because you know, they all live by fear of what surrounds them in the woods. And with the characters that have a disability, we see Ivy, who, like Shay said, is blind. She kind of straddles that by not being able to see, not being able to understand, but wanting to explore and adventure anyway. She kind of represents this drive to break beyond, I don't know, like a masking culture or, you know, something that withholds from them. And Adrian Brody's character, Noah, he almost, to me, kind of represents the danger of the purely innocent upholding a culture that they can't purely understand. Mm -hmm. And of course, we can get to that with the fate of his character and the heartbreaking ending to that. But they, to me, sort of represent slight variations of that theme of people fearing what they can't see or can't understand. It's also interesting 
Would you consider these group of people Puritan? Because I'm thinking back to when the whole crux of the crucible is them dancing in the woods, right? Mm-hmm. But then you see this elaborate wedding scene mm-hmm. in the village where there's a lot of celebration. There's a lot of children like roughhousing and playing around and a lot of almost celebration. That togetherness really seems to be very fluid and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't know what your thoughts were, like, just based on, like, do you consider these people Puritan? Based on what I read regarding, like, any faith with those, like, strict, like, any society with, like, strict sort of faith-based living could be considered Puritan in some way, I would say yes. To me, it kind of reminds me of a modernized example of Puritanism. Is it exactly as it was in 1692 Salem? No, but they do have a lot of similarities, like the fear of the woods, the power that the, quote, elders have, like rules that they live by that don't really seem to make a lot of sense, like the color red is banned in the town. If they see a red flower, they have to bury it or they can't touch anything red, which seems pretty strange. So there are some of those quirky rules that exist that remind me of when I read about Puritanism. It is so interesting, though, when you come to the crux of the movie, because they aren't really operating off a text at all. They're not really operating off of religion. They're really operating off of the will of these five or six elders, because with what happens at the end and the decision to send Ivy into the woods, I mean, that was made by one elder who kind of superseded the rest, and it was based on his own personal decisions that he was able to set those rules in place and then break them as he saw fit. So Mm -hmm. it is really interesting because it's not like they have this religion or this text or these traditions to really fall back on because they all were fabricated by those elders of sorts, but how quickly those can crumble when the real world, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. starts dipping into their little peaceful reality. So maybe we should talk more about what happens in the movie because it is not what you would expect. (laughs) Right. So to start out, we're met with Ivy and she has a presence. People around the village know her. People treat her with respect and regard. She's very brash. Mm -hmm. She is not dainty or really lovesick a little bit, like her sister, who Mm. Judy Greer plays. Who plays the best friend in every rom-com ever. Literally. (laughs) You see Ivy, who is played by Bryce Dallas Howard. She's breaking up fights. She's Mm. running Mm -hmm. around. She's kind of like playing with the boys and stuff like that. She speaks her mind. So you see her kind of navigating and being very forward. So she has a crush on this guy named Lucius, who is Joaquin Phoenix. And there's some drama with her and her sister because first Judy Greer wants Joaquin Phoenix, and then there's some comedy there. But eventually, Bryce Dallas Howard and Joaquin Phoenix have intentions to marry. But all throughout, there are these figures called those who we don't speak of. Something like that. Something like that. And the way that they were taught or the way that the villagers are to have known those that we don't speak of is we leave them alone. They leave us alone. As long as we don't go into the woods, they won't come punish us. But a lot of things have been happening where dead animals are being found all over their compound and being skinned. And it kind of culminates in these figures coming out of the woods one night and marking doors with Mm -hmm. red paint 
And it's really meant to see as a warning that these folks are acting out of line. They're going beyond their territory. They're going into the woods. So it really becomes this interrogation of who is breaking this boundary, who isn't burying the red flowers, Mm -hmm. things of that nature. So while all of this is brewing, Noah, who is Adrian Brody, has a crush on Ivy and finds out that Ivy and Lucius are to be wed. And this is where this kind of bad representation of disability comes in because- Mm. Noah, not necessarily knowing what to do with this level of rejection, stabs Lucius multiple times. And then what happens is, whereas before we saw Lucius asking the elders, can I venture into the woods to go to the towns, get medicine? Because he's curious about some alternative ways to live and try to survive in this society. He becomes the one who's incapacitated because he gets stabbed. And Ivy then begs her father if she can be the one to go to the towns. I think all she needs basically is penicillin. Mm -hmm. That's all they need to sterilize his stab wound. And I think, too, they operate under the guise that because Ivy is without sight, she is thus pure to the sin that is around her or that these figures will not interfere with her because of her lack of sight. And so her father, like Shay says, kind of bends the rules. He makes the decision to let her go. But before he sends her, he drops a mega bombshell. Yeah. So the mega bombshell is that those who they do not speak of are all manufactured by the elders. Mm -hmm. They were put in place to create fear and to qualm any curiosities about what occurs outside of their little compound. Because what you come to find is we are not in 17th, 18th, 19th century. We are in the 20th century. So this group of folks, or at least this group of originating elders, were all members of a trauma group. They've all lost people to the outside. So you kind of hear throughout the movie that people have lost their loved ones to violence or they have had somebody close to them that has passed away. And as a means of healing and as a means of escape, they create their own society away and locked out from the world in the middle of this field that is surrounded by a military complex, pretty Mm -hmm. much, that is protected. It's a no-flight zone. So this is their way of running from the world and protecting themselves and returning to a more pure form of life. Mm -hmm. So when Ivy opens the shed and feels around, she feels the porcupine claws of those who shall not be spoken of. And they really come to find out that these elders had to put this fear into the folks that were born into this community and the folks that originated in this community, because otherwise they wouldn't stay. Exactly. Ivy's father tells her this, but not without saying, we put this guys together, but based on legends that already exist. So when Ivy travels into the woods, she doesn't have as much fear because she knows that most of what has been going on has been fabricated. But shortly after she goes into the woods, there starts to be some drama. Can we also just say how little Red Riding Hood all of this is? Oh my fucking God. Because all of the <sighs> those who shall not be spoken of are in red. The creatures look like pigs. They have pig faces. 
like wolfy pig, like werewolf pig. It's it's things. as if a wolf and a pig and a porcupine were were mixed <laughs> together is what these creatures are. And you have little red going into the woods to fetch something for so and so. This time little yellow in the yes. safe. Which why is yellow a safe color? I don't know. They don't yeah, yellow it. is considered the safe and red is considered because that's what I kept looking for. This being a sex podcast, I was looking for mm-hmm. where is the sex in this? And it right. really there's things you can read into, of course, but really it does have to do with more of like the sphere of the outside the sphere of red just being danger red just being Mm -hmm. all of these things but yeah she's in the woods and this creature is kind of hunting her down and she ends up being able to trick this creature into falling into like a bear trap of sorts and we come to find out that this creature is noah dressed Mm -hmm. up in the costume that he finds under his parents' floorboard when he's locked away, I guess, in his, quote, quiet room after they find out that he's the one that stabbed Lucius. And it is really tragic because, again, it's how do the innocent suffer from the informed decisions of people in power? Also, you brought up that Little Red Riding Hood thing. Little Red Riding Hood is, like, so well-known as an allegory for, like, a loss of innocence or a loss of virginity. So that is a very interesting connection to make. We don't really see that completely parallel, that idea, but it's still definitely a loss of innocence we see Ivy go through by going through the woods. Yeah, and Ivy makes it through the woods. She climbs over this Ivy Tower of sorts, this big wall. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I understand that this is supposed to be the punchline. Like, this is supposed to be the M. Night Shyamalan plot twist, like, legitimately. (laughs) But it doesn't... It hits more comedic for me than anything else. Really? Yeah. The first time I saw it, I was like, to the people in the room with me, I was like, what? 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 I was shook. Maybe it's because I've seen the scary movies and, and they oh, make yeah. fun of the village fairly, <laughs> fairly hard. And maybe I'm thinking of those jokes, but something about this poor dude who's one week on the job rolling up in his Jeep and seeing this Puritan woman covered in mud and offering him a pocket watch for mixtures and potions is like, bitch, what? Also, what the fuck did her dad think was going to happen? In my opinion, She got lucky that she came across some new guy on the job who was willing to take the penicillin, give it to her, and let her crawl back over the wall. And not put her in a penitentiary or something like that. Yeah, and by the way, it's like 1970. So it's enough of like a culture shock for that person to see her and be like, what the fuck is this? Mm Mm-hmm. And is it supposed to be commentary on, like, maybe he's going to keep it a secret? He's going to let it just slide? Is it only a matter of time before he tells somebody about what he witnessed? Well, that's what my thing is, is there's this whole scene where this ranger is helping her out and he, like, sneaks this penicillin out of this ranger bunk under the guise of his boss or whatever. And it's just like, what secret are you keeping? Like, what is the incentive for you to not call this in and tell anybody because i mean granted we get the impression that none of these rangers really know what they're protecting they're just kind of patrolling this oh go for it oh my god sorry to cut you off you know how like throughout the movie there are a couple of times where it's mentioned from lucius i think he mentions it twice maybe ivy mentions it once if i go through the woods they'll sense that i'm innocent they'll sense my intentions Mm -hmm. maybe the people outside of the wall are the real monsters Mm -hmm. and the moment where we see that ranger help ivy is the moment we see the quote monster see the pure intentions and decide to let her go yeah i mean she is read as vulnerable because she Mm -hmm. is a woman and she is she's also a redhead she's also a redhead yep which is the no-no color 
Exactly. Ooh, you're right. Yeah. And also her name is Ivy, which is a fucking plant in the fucking woods. She herself like represents the woods in itself, but also not because then it's like, is this commentary on like a calculated decision by the elders? I mean, he lets her go in part because she's blind. She can't see that it's 1970. She can't see that this whole world exists and that there's literally like a fridge of medical supplies. What would it be like if she had sight? Everything would be fucked in their society. She wouldn't come back. And that's why they wouldn't let Lucius go when he wanted to go. Because he was curious and she's content being where she's at. Like the fact that she got back is a miracle. Like how did she even get her way out? Do you think he thought she was just never going to come back? Well, it was one of two things. He thought that she was going to perish and he was going to have to sit with that. Mm. Or he knew that having her go and come back was the only chance they had at preserving their way of life because she would never be able to see the outside. Mm. She's the only person that is capable of traveling to and from and not being able to report what happened. I feel like it can be commentary on the danger of, I don't know, like her blindness to me doesn't represent blindness literally as much as it represents blindness figuratively. And I don't know if that's a misreading or if that's wrong. What I get caught up on is the father won't go. And the elder's like, you took an oath. You will never leave. You will never leave this place. You will never go. But it's interesting because we get hint through, I think, Lucius's request to go into the woods that some of these injuries or some of these conditions with modern medicine would have been fine. We find out that Ivy lost her sight. Mm, oh, that's mm-hmm. so there's that's definitely true. it's like as her father it's like when was the call that you were going to send somebody into the woods because he doesn't really care about lucius i mean mm-hmm. he cares because ivy loves lucius and ivy is his daughter but where was the line where like something was preventable or your way of life could have been better had you not just stuck to your things and maybe it's because no one had been killed or no one had mm. died but that's also not true because in the beginning they bury a 7-year-old boy but he didn't die because he was murdered he died because he was sick with something but exactly how long was it going to take mm. where he saw that the way of life that they were having wasn't sustainable for the preservation of life period interesting it seems like, and I'm kind of making connections like between two Puritan-esque societies, it seems like in the Crucible and for the real Puritans, we see a culture that was unwilling to make exceptions for their own preservation. Whereas in the village, we see a culture who's willing to make exceptions for their preservation. Yeah, but only if it means it's true preservation and that their way of life still isn't challenged. It's super fucking shady. It's strange. The only other thing I'll say about this is why does a return to 19th century or whatever century way of life, how is that a healing of grief? In what way does a return to this way of life heal you from loss? I think that a lot of that has to do with 19th century romantic thinking, that kind of thinking revolution that occurred that started glamorizing and idealizing the past pre-industrial revolution, pre-technology and kind of hearkening back to that essential basic way of living. I think that that's kind of what it's calling on, just the essentials. So I'm reading that as these damn kids and their damn phones killed my wife. Like, that's how I'm reading it then. 
Yeah. I mean, technology changes through the decades. For these people, it looked like they probably lived outside of the nature preserve, maybe in the 40s or 30s, 20s, 30s. Well, I don't know, because they talked about how, you know, the one woman, she said that her husband or whatever got shot or something like that. And one was talking about how her sister had gotten sexually abused or in an alleyway. In an alleyway by left in a dumpster? Was there like a dumpster? Gangsters or something. Am I just confused? Because Either way. It's usually involving a dumpster. My guess it was like gang violence or mm-hmm. that's what she was alluding to right so i mean yeah it could be placed in i guess a number of decades or whatever no that's a good point that is a good point what is it about the past that is so appealing because we see that a lot in movies and books in the whole cottage core trend that's happening on tiktok and <laughs> instagram and around the world like taylor swift <laughs> yeah taylor taylor swift, which is that exile was the album that got, wait what's it called it's called fucking folklore uh, folklore <laughs> It's folklore. I'm sorry. I specifically love the song Exile, but Folklore is the album that got me. I really held off on her until she came out with an album that broke me into pieces. And until I she was, came out with an uh, album I where Bonnie Bear was on it. <laughs> I know. I did. I, wait, because I love, I love Bonnie Bear, but I digress. Yeah, it's a trend we see. So I think it's worth asking, well, what the fuck? Okay, so we talked a lot about the village. Let's kind of smash together some themes that we've seen in the Crucible and in the village. And those are themes of fear of what we can't see or understand, fear of the wilderness specifically, and fear of women, honestly. Fear of women and femininity specifically. And we get to The Witch. Shay and I were talking this up in the beginning. It's a 2015 film starring Anya Taylor-Joy, who is currently starring in The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, which if you haven't seen it, you have to see it because it is so fucking good. She also is Casey Cook in 2016's Split, which I saw in an interview that Jason McAvoy was her first celebrity Jason kiss. McAvoy? I'm sorry, James McAvoy. <laughs> James McAvoy was her first celebrity kiss, which I'm so jealous because he's such a dreamboat. And she was also Emma in... 2019's Emma, which is an adaption of a Jane Austen book. Another period piece. (sighs) She is a queen. She's a queen. Anya Taylor-Joy plays Thomason. We have her mother, who is played by Kate Dickey, who... For me, I know her from playing Lysa Aaron in Game of Thrones. She plays a pretty wild and crazy bitch in that show. Then we have Mercy, which is Thomason's little sister, played by Ellie Granger. There's the old witch, played by Bathsheba Garnet, and then the young witch, played by Sarah Stevens, who has a career as a model. And those are the women that we have in The Witch. Well, and I think it's so interesting that we started with the Crucible and these trials, because that's how this movie starts out, is this family is on trial, because from what I'm understanding, Thomason's father's beliefs are so Puritan that it's too much. I know that there was talk of, I'm just preaching the gospel, or I'm just preaching what I think. I couldn't tell if it was too strict, or if he was erring away. No, I think it's too strict. <gasps> oh. Because I think he was trying to like accuse other people and be very punishing of people within this society, being so fatalistic almost. Mm. Because you see this with how often this family has to pray, and even a talk that he has with his son in the woods the one day. He's just like, oh, remember what I told you? And his son's even like, yes, we're all sinners. We have to pray for forgiveness. And when we die, I'm you can tell like this kind of shame is hammered in. And that could be Puritan, but it I- is. But that's the thing. There's dialogue later where the mom is saying like, you and your extremist beliefs is what oh, got us kicked out. Like mm-hmm. he is brimstone, mm-hmm. I think in comparison to the place they left. That's a good point. So- 
yeah, Shay's right. They open with a trial. The town is like, you gotta go buy. So they leave with everything they own. They find a nice little plot of land right at the brink of the forest and they build their home. Thomason's mother, Catherine, is pregnant. So after they build their home, we see cut to Catherine has her baby. That makes their fifth child. Sam, right? Yeah. So Thomason is the oldest. What is she like? 14, 13, 14. Yeah. Caleb is the second eldest. He's the oldest boy. And then we have the fucking twins. And I literally. These twins suck. I fuck. It, like the little boy is whatever. But fucking mercy, man. I <laughs> cannot stand her. I mean, she's a cute actress. She does a really fucking good job. But her character is so <laughs> infuriating. Anyway. What are they like? Six? Yeah. They're little, little, little. That's probably a perfect age. Good for you for. Good for you. That was really good. Six, I, six, that's six, six, devil. <gasps> that's really interesting. And then, of course, we have Samuel, who is a little baby child. And shit hits the fan when Catherine asks Thomason to take the baby. She needs to get some shit done. Thomason takes the baby. She's playing peekaboo. She has the baby laying down. She's kneeling over the baby. She's peekaboo, peekaboo. And all of a sudden, she moves her hand to say peekaboo, and the baby's fucking gone. Vanished into thin air. And then there's all of these, like, sing-songy things in the air leading into the woods and holy fuck, you see a baby. Well, you don't really see a baby die. It's really messed up. So yeah, this is where we see Old Witch. Old Witch has baby. It looks like Old Witch castrates the baby. And the next thing you see, Old Witch rubbing blood all over her body. Old Witch muddles the baby like it's a fucking old fashioned. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. But like, you just see this like... It's horrible. Yes. And she like rubs the blood and guts all over her mm -hmm. and it makes her young and hot. Exactly. And we see her later tempting Caleb, right? Yeah. Later in the woods. What I really like, because I was thinking this to myself, why does this movie show the witch? And I think it's because if we weren't seeing the witch the whole time, we would be wondering if Thomason really was a witch or not. Do you know what I mean? Like if we mm. didn't see the witch, we would be wondering but the whole time we know that there is a witch and I think it makes her family turning against her all that more haunting and terrifying. Well, it's also like Thomason is the only woman of age in that movie that can really be sexual besides the young witch. Because her mother makes a comment that she has just gotten her period. And you could argue like the mom just had a baby. You could see the mom as a sexual being if you wanted to. But after Samuel dies, she becomes like morose. She seems She's a older. married woman. Yes, exactly. Being a married woman is like the closest you're ever going to get to purity again after you start menstruating. Because that's the thing. I wouldn't say that until that scene with Caleb in the woods that you would think the witch is using sex or using nudity, being provocative, like, as a witch-like trait. Well, the first time we see her as a young woman is after she rubs the baby all over herself and then sees Caleb in the wood. Yes, but that's what I'm saying. Like, oh, it's not mm -hmm. until then yes, yes. that we really see her as sexual because it, innately she's old witch, she's not sexual, yeah. and she's just naked. That's not inherently sexual. It's like Hocus Pocus yeah. when Sarah Jessica Parker becomes young again and she like grabs her boobs and is like, I'm young again, yeah. I'm pretty, and mm -hmm. she's so excited. Right. We don't see old witches tuning into that sexual power. We see young witches tuning into that sexual power, but they need innocent blood first. But it is really interesting, though, that this witch, whether it's the witch or like the feel of the witch, does have an impact 
on this environment because mm. this family's not able to grow crops. All of their crops are rotten. There's no food to the point where Caleb and his father have to go out into the woods to try to set trap to try to get food because there's no resources. And this is where we learn that Thomason is of age because the parents contemplate having to wed her off to a richer family up the hill. And I think what they were referring to is it could be wedding her off, but finding a place for her to work. Something that was very common in Puritan culture was young girls getting live-in jobs with families. We see that in The Crucible, like Abigail Williams, the reason she has an affair with John Proctor is because she's working a job like that. She's mm-hmm. living with the Proctors. Right. And that's how she gets to know him and has the affair. So that's what they want for Thomason. I don't know why I took it as like... Like every time you hear about a girl moving out, it's for her to get married in an old setting. So I think that makes sense. Caleb and Thomason go out into the woods because they feel a sense of responsibility because Thomason doesn't want to get shipped away. Mm-hmm. And Caleb is understanding that he needs to ascend as like the man of the house. And he's like, what, eight? Yeah, or maybe 10, ten like, like at that. Something like that. So Thomason's like, well, fine, take me with you. So they go out into the woods and she loses her second sibling. But something that stood out to me was that scene before they go into the woods, right before they go into the woods, there's a scene where Thomason is by the stream and there's that slow pan up from her chest up to her face and mm. we realize it's from Caleb's perspective. Like, Yeah, he's, oh yeah, you're right. So he, we learn, is also coming of age, but looking at his sister in sort of a sexual way or maybe not in a sexual way, but he's looking at her changing body. And I think that's good context for later when mm-hmm. he does run into the witch in the woods. I mean, the scene's disturbing in a lot of different ways, but you see the witch of the woods who is now young and provocative. I think her breasts are exposed, mm-hmm. or if not, they're very out there. A lot of cleavage. A lot of cleave. And you see this witch kind of enchanting Caleb and leaning in and kissing him on the mouth. Yeah. But you're right, that scene of him looking at Thomason's chest is necessary. That seed needed to be planted that he was approaching arousal. You know, exactly. or that he was, at least was approaching being capable of that. Granted, it was a very not comfortable, not good scene of this mm-hmm. young woman kissing this kid on the mouth, but mm-hmm. it, it still was in line with his development up until that point. And also, I think that kind of alluding to, I don't want to say incestuous energy, but also incestuous energy between Caleb and Thomason, because they are the closest of the siblings, and they are a family that is literally alone and has been alone and will be alone for God knows how long, also kind of connects to a sense of incestuous energy between father and daughter. And we can get to that later, but while we're in the vein of incest, why not just throw it in there? Let's Let's just just put it all on the table. Start in the pot. Oh my God. So Thomason loses Caleb. Yeah. But Caleb ends up finding his way home. He's naked. In the night, in the rain. And he's very sick. Mm-hmm. And he has, oh, he has like, it looks like marks around his mouth, supposedly perhaps where the witch either sucked some kind of life form out of him or put some kind of life form into him. Mm-hmm. Because when he starts coming to enough, he appears to be possessed in some capacity. He's like that maybe for about a day. They decide that they're going to make plans to go home, the family that is. So the mother, father, the twins, Caleb, and Thomason, they want to leave. But that night, So the night before the morning they're going to leave, Caleb dies. And right after he has this strange sort of sit-up moment where he's like, I love Jesus. I come to Jesus. He's smiling. He sort of 
exhales this sigh of ecstasy and then he just fucking dies, which what was that? Like, I don't know. Was he free of this possession? Was that part of the possession? I don't know how exorcisms work. (laughs) Well, I don't know that he was ever, was he ever truly possessed? Like, was he he like- He was writhing and turning. He was feverish. If we're looking at Puritan signs of witchery, it seems like he was at least witched in some way. I don't know. See, for me, like, I don't know if I read that as bewitched or I just saw that as this witch left him within inches of his life and his soliloquy at the end was him just seeing the light and dying. To me, he was definitely fucking witched because all that shit, like the writhing, the fever, the mumbling, that's like textbook, my son is witched stuff. Like when you hear about the crucible and you hear Betty is inert in her bed, Betty sits up, Betty goes to the window. She's trying to fly out. Betty is unreasonable. I don't know what's wrong with her. Like that's what I saw going on with Caleb. So I think that this was alluding to he was witch in some capacity. And the twins, that's when they start watching Caleb and they start mimicking him. Remember? Mm -hmm. Because that's when, because at one point, Mercy, she's constantly poking at Thomason. She's saying, you're a witch, you're a witch, you witch Caleb. Finally, one day at the river, Thomason's like, yeah, I'm a witch. Yeah, I can witch you. Don't tell our parents. And it's kind of set up as almost an older sibling jest to a younger sibling, where your older sibling tries to scare the shit out of you and it ends up working. But it's at this moment where Caleb is super sick and in critical condition and showing signs of being witched that the twins choose to bring this up and say, it's Thompson's fault. She told me this by the river. She said this. And they start mimicking what Caleb is doing, just like we see the girls mimicking what Abigail is doing in Mm. the crucible. Right. Which is another thing that we see, like kind of this group thing or kids sort of getting caught up in some kind of moment, not really understanding what they're doing, thinking something means one thing when it doesn't. I don't know. But then Caleb dies and the twins pretend to be unresponsive for a while. But the parents don't seem really to be paying attention to them. It's like in one way they know that the twins aren't being serious. But in another way, it's enough for them to be like, Thomas, and get out of my sight. It's while Caleb is dying They tell everyone, pray, everyone, and pray. And the kids say they forgot their prayers. Oh, which is a no-no. Yes. (laughs) I'm sure in Puritan, that's what the crux is, is yeah, they're imitating Caleb, but the really like driving point home was they forgot their prayers because they're calling Thomason a witch and Thomason's like, well, they're not praying. How could they forget their prayers? And that's what has the dad lock all three of them in a shed with Black Phillip, Mm -hmm. the goat. Not before, though. He takes Thomason outside, sits her down, like, Mm. what, in his lap, and is like, are you a witch? And she says no, but he still doesn't believe her. Which is, again, what is the deal with, like, the accuser has the power? I mean, I think of John Proctor's line where he's like, is the accuser always holy now? And that's what it seems like. Here, the twins say one thing. They're six, like you said, which is a really good estimate. I feel like you're totally right. (laughs) I'm still talking about it. But... I don't know. Thomason is 15. She understands a lot more. Why won't they believe her? You know, it's just like so weird and strange. But she's also been responsible for the disappearance of two of their other children. Yeah, it's a lot. So I would say on any other given day, yes, you trust your eldest, but Samuel is dead and gone. Now Mm. Caleb is dead and gone. And both were last seen in the woods in the care of their daughter, who is now of sexual and bewitchment age. Mm sexual and bewitchment age. Hell yeah. But then that's the thing. You have these young kids and Mm. these young six-year-old kids or whatever. They're not supposed to be tainted by sin yet at this point. 
So exactly. if anything, are you going to blame them? And also this takes place before the Salem Witch Trials would have taken place. So okay. this, so the Salem Witch Trials were 1692. I think this takes place around, let's see, when did the Puritans land? 16, I think 24. This probably takes place in like 1630s, 1640s. So like Shay said, Thomason and the twins are locked in the barn because mom and dad are like, I can't do this anymore. We have a scene where there's some weird action going on around the cow, which has previously been squirting blood from her udders, which is a very bad sign. <laughs> the it's twins not strawberry milk is <laughs> <laughs> no. It's none of that. We're not having strawberry milk at this time. Could you imagine? Anyway, so there's a scene where the twins, of course, twins Thompson in the barn. There's a weird smacking sound. There's the cow. All of a sudden, Mercy looks over. She adjusts her eyes enough in the darkness to see that the old witch is back in the barn. And then there's a scream. And then that's it. That's all we get of that scene. So Catherine is obviously at this point very morose, very upset at the loss of her second kid. And she sees Caleb Mm -hmm. carrying the baby. Mm -hmm. And like, it's like, oh, I found him. I found him. And she takes the baby into her arms to breastfeed. And I think it cuts to like the morning or it cuts to later. I don't know what it cuts to, but you see there is a crow pecking at her nipple and just kind of like tearing her chest out. Mm -hmm. She's not dead, but she looks like she is completely entranced. She has no feeling of what is actually happening. You mentioned something earlier about the power that the witch has both on the environment, but I think it like this is definitely the work of a witch, right? I think we're led to believe that. I mean, she's seeing literal visions before her strong enough to keep her from noticing a crow is pecking at her nipple, which like how sensitive that would wake her right the fuck up, but she doesn't. And she wakes up in the morning. She has like the blood down her chest from her wound. So then that's when we see the dad wakes up. He goes outside. He sees that the barn is like completely demolished. The twins are gone. Thomason lays. There's a hole in the ceiling. Oh my God. Yes, hole in the ceiling. Fucking witch on her broomstick. Exactly. The kids have been taken away, but Thomason stays. Mm-hmm. And is this where Black Philip kills daddy? Yes. I Black Philip. Black Philip. Something that is very common in devil lore is that the devil often takes the form of various animals. So perhaps a crow or a goat, goat, which throughout the entire movie, Mercy has been skipping around going, Black Philip, Black Philip. The whole movie saying that Black Philip is speaking to her. Black Philip is saying this and that and this and that. Nobody's really paying any attention to it until at the end, Black Philip totally rams into the dad which by the way we didn't even mention this has the deepest voice <laughs> the oh, deepest yes. most terrifying this man's tenor is a lot his tenor is way bass like he is like i'm not even gonna do it because i'm i'm scared that i'm gonna be too good at imitating him and then i'm gonna be embarrassed this man has a very deep voice it's terrifying it's it's terrifying but somehow black phillips gets deeper <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Black Phillip's voice is is very deep, which is scary coming from a goat, especially. So Black Phillip rams the dad. And then there's this moment where you see the dad, who reminds me of John Proctor in some ways, because you see him striving with his soul throughout the entirety of this film for bringing his family to the wilderness or the brink of the wilderness in the first place, for selling his wife's cup so he could buy bear traps to hopefully get food for the winter, for neglecting to tell his wife he was the one that stole or took the silver cup when Catherine was blaming Thomason. Mm -hmm. So we see him kind of stack regret on regret on regret. 
Black Phillip rams him towards the end. We see this moment where he seems like he's going to run away or fight back or do something, but then his body just relaxes. And in that moment, he lets Black Phillip ram him again and totally kill him. And so he's dead. And then, of course, that's when the mom comes out and mm-hmm. sees Thomason has now come to and sees like that the father's dead. Mm-hmm. And those two wrestle a little bit. Mm-hmm. And Thomason is forced to kill her mom. Yeah. I mean, her mom is saying awful things to her. Her mom is acknowledging, I've seen the way you look at your father, mm-hmm. like acknowledging those like incestuous vibes. Obviously, the twins aren't there. So it's just the two of them that are left. She resents her daughter. And also in the scene, we see. Thomason's mother's hair down for the first time and it's long and blonde, just like Thomason's. Mm. And it sort of reminds me of, is this like battle of like youth against faded youth? Mm-hmm. And it also reminds me of what you mentioned earlier when we talk about Abigail Williams, like women taking advantage of women or women being pitted against women in a patriarchal society. And so is this mother so hateful of her daughter partially because of her fading youth and her daughter's budding youth? I don't know. But anyway, Thomason has to stab her mother because it's one or the other. And what a way for someone to die and get stabbed. <gasps> Everything's a dick. Oh my God, I didn't even think of that. I, every time it's a surprise. Every, every time. time it's a surprise. <laughs> but literally, I mean, the dad gets rammed to death mm-hmm. by the devil. I mean, come on. And then, I mean, and that's the thing. A lot of these children disappear. They like, do. Their deaths aren't really sexualized except for Caleb's. But yeah, Thomason has to stab her mom and then that's it. And then that's when she is broken down enough where Black Philip is now speaking to her. Black Philip is imploring her to write her name in this book. I found this part interesting because she's like, I've never been taught to read or write. I can't. And he's like, I'll guide thy hand. Yeah, Black Philip is really sensual. Oh, yeah. No, he's, he's got a little bit of a sexy voice for a goat. I told, I was talking to somebody about this. I was like, Black Philip, he be a temptation. He goes, what dost thou want? Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes. Uh, oh, my God. How do you say no? But that's another really good point. And it has me thinking about Puritans. All these women throughout the trials confess to writing in the devil's book, but a lot of them probably didn't even know how to fucking write. Mm-hmm. Another piece of flawed logic. There we go. What the fuck? At least I'm glad they held that part together. Yeah, that's, I mean, I would have never thought of that. So then Black Phillip signs her name for her mm-hmm. and she walks into the woods. She follows Black Phillip into the woods, I should say. Is she naked now or does she become naked? I think she becomes naked because I remember her standing, still has her mother's dried blood on her body. And she's standing before, I think, Black Phillip because he asks her to take off her clothes. Mm -hmm. And so she kind of like takes that like wide neck white thing and just like slides it down and then she is naked. So I guess she has to be naked to sign the book or whatever. But Thomason and Black Phillip walk up on quite the bonfire going on in the woods. Oh my gosh. We hear the sing-songy cacophonous, harmonic, yeah, sing-songy voices that we've been hearing throughout the film. Not just one witch. There's at least, what, seven? Mm-hmm. Six? <laughs> I don't know. But I also found it interesting. So it's a bunch of naked ladies. Bare naked ladies. Bare naked ladies. <laughs> dancing around a fire of sorts. And they're all like singing and, and being happy and merry and dancing. And they all kind of start floating in Black Phillip's presence. And you see... Thomason, I think for the first time in the mm-hmm. movie, laugh. 
Mm-hmm. Like you see her smile and begin to laugh very gleefully. And she you, throws her head back. Her hair is down. Mm. She is now a witch. She now belongs to the devil, belongs to Black Philip. But I did find it interesting that the only time in which women seem to enjoy each other's company in this film is if they're bewitched or as if they're devilish. That's the only time where women seem to be in community with one another and not mad. Because Mercy and Thomason always pissed at each other. The mom always pissed at Thomason. There isn't a level of like comfortable solidarity between women in this movie at all. It is not until a group of these witches that are singing, and you could argue that they are all united in their worship of the devil, but they are laughing and singing with one another and ascending together and are powerful together. And of course, that can only happen if they're bad. That is such a good point. I'm shook. (laughs) Yes, you're right. And those women, their energy is literally so strong that it does make them float. Mm -hmm. And Thomason with them. Mm -hmm. Like she walks up on that scene. She's not even part of the ceremony. She's standing off to the side and their energy is still so strong that she starts to float. They include her. That's the girl gang I want to be part of is you're in a bonfire in the woods and it's just like, hey girl, get naked. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) let's fucking go. That's just frolic. Yeah. Yes, that's so true. And so that kind of brings us to the end. This conversation has been, for me, more enlightening than I originally anticipated. And again, I come back to this point that I believe and that I was trying to make and that I think I'm still going to keep experiencing as the years go on, which is Puritan culture and the type of strict, rigid culture on which the United States was founded as we know it. And I'm sort of excluding Native Americans here because, unfortunately, we had a lot of erasure of Native American culture by the time our sort of white Anglo-Saxon cultures got a hold of it. But by the time this Puritan Catholic culture took root and began to sort of populate and carry its way throughout the decades, I just think it's so clear that so many of our ideals today or so many of the things we find terrifying, so many of the things that we are aware of or not aware of are still very closely connected to this culture. Mm -hmm. So yeah, ponder that over your (laughs) Thanksgiving dinner with or without your family in whatever way is going to be the most safe for you. Yeah. How about while you're at it, maybe donate to some indigenous lands Yes, and look up where you are and what lands you occupy and maybe educate yourself on those peoples because Thanksgiving kind of sucks and imperialism sucks mm-hmm. and we probably should stop celebrating it. That's yeah. my two cents. Thanksgiving is a farce. I mean. No, it's bullshit. It is. And also, I mean, if you get a chance, maybe socially distant with some feminine power in the forest and try to float. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's how we should celebrate is yes, uh, coming together in a socially distant way. They f- were socially distant for sure. They were they were they were, abs- they were absolutely oh, six they feet were apart all vertically. Over the trees. <laughs> 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 yes, maybe we should go do that now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we got to find the nearest black goat. You have a black cat. Oh my god, Jade. <laughs> <laughs> you have a black cat. Can we write your name in your book? Mm-hmm. Well, let's go do that now. So next week, what are we doing? We are talking about The Faculty, which is 1998 sci-fi film where teachers get overtaken by aliens. Amazing. We really wanted to do this partially because Elise has to for school. hey but also <laughs> partially because it is finals week for a lot of us out there. Mm-hmm. 
Elise and I both work in education. Mm-hmm. I, work I'm, at, I work in higher education, so it's definitely finals week. When Shay says I'm doing this for school, I'm doing it for my grad degree, not my students at, in high school. <laughs> this is for my own grad degree. <laughs> so yes, my professor agreed to let me use this podcast to help in my final project. So I'm really excited to do that next week. Yeah. And we just wanted to give honor to how a lot of people might be looking at their professors and thinking, you are out of this world. Mm, in a good or a bad way. Yeah. Mostly a bad way. Probably, probably. a bad way. <laughs> So we're going to be covering that. And then we have our movies planned out for the rest of the year. But let us know what you thought about this structure of episode where we kind of touch on a bunch of different movies and not just one. We do have films kind of planned out. We have some holiday ones coming up, which we're really excited. I am actually very excited. Holiday horror movies to Mm -hmm. unpack and some cool things to close out this year and kick off the new year. But as always, if you have any suggestions or any feedback or any thoughts on anything we talked about, you can definitely feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. Or follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast. Until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye.